I'm Andrea Donsky, host of the Morphous for Menopause podcast. Welcome. I'm really excited for today's interview because I'm speaking with Dr. Debbie Rice, a naturopathic doctor who works for the Dutch test. And we're going to talk about why it's important to get tested and not just guess about what's going on in your body, but to actually understand what's happening with your sex hormones, like estrogen and progesterone and testosterone. Are they high? Are they low? Where are they at? And how are they, how is estrogen metabolizing in your body. We're also going to talk about liver detoxification as well as cortisol. That's coming up right now. Welcome to the show, Dr. Debbie Rice. I am so happy to have you here. So excited to be here. Thank you for having me. So let's start with what you do and uh, what are you passionate about in terms of testing? Oh, those are great questions. Um, my name is Debbie Rice. I am the assistant medical director at Dutch Test. So that's the dried urine test for comprehensive hormones. I also have a small practice on the side um, in Portland, Oregon. So I do see patients um, as well. Um, and what am I passionate about with testing? I'm passionate about a lot of things. Um, I'm passionate about healthcare, access to healthcare. So I think it's really important, you know, even if you have the best care that you can give if it's inaccessible, right? Like that's a problem. So I'm really passionate about access to healthcare and looking at like how we can get people healthcare, what they need, the testing that they need, the care that they need. So I'm, I'm a huge advocate for that as much as I can be. Um, as far as testing, obviously I love the Dutch test. It's one of the, um, I do feel, I mean, even though I work for Dutch, I do feel like the Dutch test is really an exceptional test, um, which is why I can stand behind it. I can get behind it and I get all excited about it too. And the Dutch test does test. It's got its own, it's got its niche, right? Like we're, we're not the stool testing people. We're not the genetics testing people. We are the people for sex hormones. So think estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, DHEA and adrenal function. So cortisol as well as DHEA again. So we're looking at you know, how does your body make these hormones? What does your body do with these hormones? And, and what are those levels? So I'm, I am passionate about that. Thank you for that. I was actually going to say, can you tell us what the Dutch test is? But you answered it pretty much um, you know, in terms of it. So I, where I'd like to start with is there's a lot of talk about testing. So you mentioned genetic testing. You mentioned there's, a, there's blood testing, there's urine, there's saliva. Mm -hmm. I'd like to start all, with all things. what are the differences in them and how does the Dutch test differ from all of those and in terms of getting those results? Because I think it's a good place for people to understand because some people have heard of what the Dutch test is. Some people have never heard of it. People may have heard of saliva versus urine. So let's start mm -hmm. right off the bat explaining what the differences are. Yeah, absolutely. So the Dutch test, so Dutch stands for dried urine testing of comprehensive hormones. So it is a dried urine test. And what that means is when you do your test collection or when you do your collection, um, you get these little cards they are kind of like the size of a business card and you can open it up and there's this little filter paper in there and you pee either directly on that, or you can pee in a cup and dip it so that you get the urine on that strip. And then you let it dry. Once that is all dry, you send it to the lab. We're able to reconstitute and pull that urine with all of the hormones in to what we need to, to analyze the data. That is dried urine testing, which is very different than like the urine testing that you think of with like the jug that you walk around, you pee in, you know, and then you pee, put it in the fridge, pee, put it in the fridge, right? Like that's different. That's like 
you're like, they call it a 24 hour urine and you still get really great information from that as well. That's 24 hour urine. And then you have serum, which is the same thing as blood testing. So that's your standard blood draw or blood poke, depending on what type of testing you're doing. And then there is salivary testing. So salivary testing can be used for a couple of different things. I would say generally it's considered a gold standard for free cortisol testing. Um, That's the one that like you spit in the little tube and they give you your cortisol values. Um, You can also do salivary testing for sex hormones like estrogen, progesterone, testosterone. A lot of times um, genetic tests are done through saliva swabs, right? Um, so those are generally the different kinds of tests that are available. Now, when we look at Dutch tests compared to other testing avenues, when because the Dutch test is more focused on sex hormones and adrenal function, the other ways that you can test that would be through 24-hour urine, salivary testing, or serum slash blood testing. And the difference with between all of those is what you can get. And I will say that the Dutch test becomes one test where you can get your estrogen level, progesterone levels, testosterone, DHEA, cortisol. And you also not just get the value of what that estrogen or cortisol is, you also see what those hormones are doing in your body. We call those metabolites. Um, And that's where you get this difference of what do you get between like a 24 hour urine versus a blood draw of estrogen, let's say, right? So if you just wanted to know an estradiol value and you didn't want to know anything else about it, a blood test is great for that, right? Like you can do it quick, you get it, it's it's great, but you don't get the metabolites or what the body is doing with all of that estrogen. So you can get that in a 24 hour urine, Or you can also get that in a Dutch test. And it's interesting for um, the Canadian providers that I have talked to, a lot of Canadian practitioners will do a 24-hour urine so that they get all of the metabolites of estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, but they'll also do a serum or a blood draw so they can see like the estradiol, progesterone, testosterone, and they will also do a salivary test to look at what cortisol is doing throughout the day. The Dutch test combines all of the good parts of all of those. So you get all of that in one test instead of having to do like a three-stop shop to get that diurnal pattern of cortisol. So when we're testing cortisol, the best way to test cortisol is to do what is called like a four-spot or a five-spot sample. What that means is those four-spot or five-spot is you'd collect it four or five times throughout the day because we want to see what that cortisol is doing throughout the day. You can do a blood test of cortisol, but blood cortisol is bound and it's not free and available. So it's not a really great representation of what is free and available or how your cortisol is acting throughout the day. So salivary and dried urine testing are a better way to go with that because you can collect multiple times throughout the day so we can see what that curve is because that's going to be the biggest chunk or meat of the information that we want to get from cortisol. You mentioned the word metabolites. Can you explain what that means? Because I think for um, some people listening, they'd be like, well, I don't really understand what a metabolite is and why does it matter? Yeah, that's a great question. And so, and I would say, even when I first heard metabolites, I was like, that sounds very sciencey. I don't know what that means. Essentially for a good understanding of that is really what the, um, what the rest of estrogen is doing in your body, for example. So we think of estrogen, right? 
when we think of estrogen, we're generally thinking of what's called estradiol. That's the main or most potent estrogen in our body. The metabolites are what happens to estrogen after it goes through its little, you know, doorway keyhole to do what it needs to do. So it's more of like the downstream or bigger story of what estrogen is doing in the body. That's what those metabolites are. Same thing with testosterone, same thing with DHEA, same thing with progesterone, same thing cortisol. So it's more of the, um, the bigger picture of what continues to happen with those hormones in the body. They have actual values. We just need to see once they have those values, like where they fall, right? Like what does that, it's almost like looking at, I kind of compare it to, um, lifting the hood of a car, right? Like you can see, right. You have a Mercedes, but you want to see what the engine looks like that's what the metabolites are for estrogen, right? Like your Mercedes is estrogen under the hood is what the metabolites are. So it's just a deeper picture into what happens after estrogen does its, its main job. So as we, you know, when we're premenopausal and then we're peri and then we're, then we're menopausal and, and Morphis is speaking to women who are in perimenopause and menopause. So whether you're listening on the sure. podcast or whether you're watching here on YouTube, highly recommend that you share this with as many people as you can, because I really believe that testing is so, in, so critical because I often hear, I I've got a nice TikTok page where I talk a lot. Of, it's all I talk about is menopause there. And the question that keeps coming up for women is how do I know if I'm in perimenopause? How do I know if I'm in menopause? Now we know 12 months without a period, that's kind of the general marker for menopause, but perimenopause can be anywhere from two to 12 years, right? Prior to being in menopause. So Absolutely. something like the Dutch test be a, a, a test because we know that getting a blood test and we've had many doctors who shared this as well, is that it's only a snippet in time. So it's a very mm -hmm. hard indicator in terms of saying, well, I don't know, you might be in perimenopause. Let's look at your symptoms. Would you mm -hmm. say that getting a Dutch test can be a definitive way of determining whether you are, you know, pre, peri or menopausal? I will say um, with perimenopause, I'm going to put a little disclaimer there because perimenopause, you have so many um irregularities that can happen. So you have a lot of changes with your estrogen and progesterone. So you have these significant variabilities between your estrogen and progesterone and how the body is signaling for that. I do feel like the Dutch test is helpful because I believe in test don't guess. Mm -hmm. And even though symptoms are very important, right? Like they're absolutely part of the clinical picture. Testing helps you understand that. Now, I would not say that one Dutch test would be definitive. But if you are doing symptom evaluation, you do a preliminary Dutch test, and then you continue to kind of monitor with testing, you get a better idea of what that looks like. But because there is such variability, and I think that's where you would look into, yep, I would definitely categorize you as perimenopausal, that consistent variability, right? Like if you are premenopausal, you are having regular cycles predictable cycles generally. Um, once you are postmenopausal, you are no longer having cycles, right? Like that is also predictable. The perimenopause is the very unpredictable part. And I will also say this, the hard thing about perimenopause is the symptoms of perimenopause can also mimic significant hormone imbalance. So even if you are premenopausal and you're having irregular cycles, you want to look at hormone imbalance, stress-related likely, that can mimic perimenopause. And so I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that any testing would be definitive, but the Dutch testing would certainly help us understand what that hormone picture looks like. One of the things that I try to tell my patients is 
our ovaries have a life, right? And they, when they're ready to retire, they take their, their beers, they go to the beach. The adrenal glands have to take over. So your adrenal glands become your second ovaries. We want to make sure that we understand what the adrenal glands are doing so that because your adrenals aren't going to care if they are stressed out, they're worried about one foot in front of the other, getting you up for your day, like making sure that you're safe. They don't care about hot flashes, night sweats, sex drive. They don't care about that. Right. So we want to make sure that your adrenal glands, your cortisol production, your DHEA is nice, healthy and stable. And that's going to be part of that hormone evaluation when we're looking at perimenopause or even leading up to perimenopause. It's not a bad idea to understand what your baseline is going into perimenopause, as well as checking out what your hormone overall presentation looks like either deep into perimenopause or kind of, you know, gliding in to perimenopause. I actually think what you just said was brilliant because we do know that the adrenal glands take over for the ovaries, but the issue is, is so many of us, I'd say probably most of us are so stressed going into that phase of life, right? Absolutely. So already our adrenal glands are so taxed already that we're coming into it as like, you know, with an issue because of the fact that we are living our lives and we're constantly in that sympathetic mode and our nervous system is so taxed. So I feel like having a Dutch test or getting that Dutch test prior to, you know, even if you're in that peri mode or just understanding what that benchmark is. So that way you could take care of those adrenal glands. And I know it's not an easy thing to do, you know, like we now know though, you know, meditation and walks in nature, like anything that's going to stimulate the parasympathetic is so keen. I talk so much about lifestyle, but really mm-hmm. keeping that, you know, trying to, you know, not be constantly in that sympathetic mode will be very helpful. So what do you recommend? So I, do you get a benchmark, you know, whatever, wherever you're at. So whoever you, wherever you are, whatever age you are listening to this, um, whether you um, are pre peri or post get a benchmark. And then when you're in, you suspect you're in that peri mark, you can always do another test, I guess. And then how mm-hmm. much, how much time after that would you recommend? Cause you said it's a good kind of like starting point. Would it be like mm-hmm. a year later doing another one, six months? Like what would be your, your recommendation? Yeah. And I think that this is going to depend on the person, right? So I think it depends on their stress. I think it depends on what the supplementation is and how they feel with that supplementation. Um, with a Dutch test, I usually recommend at least three months before retesting because we want to allow for whatever supplementation lifestyle adjustments you're going to do to take effect. And then we can see what that result looks like. And then depending on how you're feeling, if we need to adjust anything, what that symptom presentation looks like, you can test like a year later, which I think is a pretty good idea. Like once you feel like you're pretty stable doing another test anywhere from nine to 12 months later, I feel is, is quite fair, especially if you are continuing to like, you know, burn the candle, hopefully not at both ends. Right. So, which which is, that's a, that's a, that's a fair amount of time. Let's let's talk cortisol because Mm -hmm. there's a lot of talk about, you know, especially in the perimenopause and menopause world about, you know, our cortisol is too high, our cortisol is too low. Can you give us a little bit of an education about cortisol and why it's so important when it comes to uh, managing perimenopausal and menopausal symptoms? Absolutely. Yeah. So all of the hormones that we test on the Dutch test, that's going to include cortisol are what I call Goldilocks hormones. And the reason I say that is because if you have too much, it's a problem. 
if you have too little, it's a problem. Cause I feel like we get in this like, Ooh, cortisol is bad. You know, like poor cortisol gets this, you know, it's so demonized. And as much as we don't want too much cortisol, we also need cortisol to be able to manage our metabolism, right? So your adrenal glands and your thyroid gland are best friends. They work together on a daily basis to make sure that your metabolism is able to keep up with the stress that you are dealing with on a day-to-day basis. So, and cortisol is very responsive. So I always tell my patients, your adrenal glands are like a puppy. The reason I say that is because your adrenal glands like routine, right? So, and the same thing with a puppy, right? They know when it's time to wake up, they know when it's time to go for their walk, they know when it's time for dinner, they know when it's time for bed. Same thing with your adrenal glands. They do so much better when you have, as you said, lifestyle support, right? You know that you're getting up around the same time every morning. Your blood sugar is stable throughout the day. So however that looks for you, some people eat every two hours, some people do intermittent fasting. It has to be individual for you. Cortisol responds to changes in blood sugar. So you need to make sure that your blood sugar is stable. That's part of your health house, right? Like you need to make sure that your health house is strong. Physical activity is going to be a major contributor to that. And I'm not talking about, well, you know, I garden. That's great. That's probably helpful for stress management, but you need to also have purposeful movement, right? So it doesn't matter if you're working a lot during the day, you have to have purposeful movement because your your that routine is going to influence how your cortisol and your stress responds to that. Um, and sleep. I cannot say that enough. Sleep is going to be one of the biggest things to influence that diurnal rhythm for you and how your body responds to stress, how your body is able to continue to respond to stress, right? Like if you're not sleeping, you're not able to get that reset from growth hormone to be able to reset that response for you. As you were talking about before with the sympathetic versus parasympathetic, a lot of us, even if you were to take a week off of work, if you still live in a city Our old brain knows this. It can sense Wi-Fi. It can sense 5G, 4G, 3G, lights from the city, sounds from the city, planes. It keeps it at this low hum level of awareness. So your sympathetic nervous system is always on. You need to be able to have a good balance or counterbalance with that for parasympathetic, which means we need to work even a little bit harder to make sure that we can have that parasympathetic sympathetic balance. Because if you're always in sympathetic, that's going to be dangerous for you. It's helpful if you're running from a saber-toothed tiger, but you can't do that all the time. Your body can't keep up with that. And so that's where cortisol is going to be very important in helping to manage and balance all of that for you. A lot of women in perimenopause and menopause suffer from sleep issues. So when you say, you know, getting a good night's sleep, my brain goes to, oh my gosh, that's so many women are not getting that good night's sleep. How does that affect um, our cortisol levels as we're in this stage of life? And how could we manage it better? Like, what are some things that we can do? Yeah, great question. As you said before, lifestyle things um, are going to be important. So making sure that you are doing all of the good sleep hygiene things so that you're not doing excitatory activities in the evening. You're off your phone at least an hour before bed. Screen time, right? So the blue light can actually affect your melatonin and your body's ability to release melatonin. So all of that's going to be helpful. Physical activity, purposeful physical activity helps to reset that circadian rhythm for you. Um, That's going to be important. The cortisol. So cortisol and melatonin are your daytime and nighttime hormones. Cortisol has to have this rise in the morning and then fall throughout the day so that it can like pass the baton to melatonin. So the melatonin can do its job and rise at night so you can sleep. 
If you don't have an appropriate rise in the morning, you don't have an appropriate fall, melatonin doesn't get the appropriate signal to do its job. And if you don't have good sleep, then your cortisol in the morning is either going to over-respond or generally this is more of what I see, it's not going to be able to have the oomph to respond because you haven't had enough good sleep. So you do get this big effect of cortisol if you're not getting to sleep early enough or if you're not getting enough sleep. And I know that that will already start to stress people out because they're like, I'm just trying to sleep. Um, part of that is going to be hormone evaluation, right? Like as your hormones change, right. your estrogen affects your sleep. Your progesterone affects your sleep. Testosterone, same thing. So you want to be, I would say, preventative or proactive in evaluating what your hormones look like so you can anticipate that. And then also ensuring that you are having that balance of sympathetic versus parasympathetic, right? Like you are having that good cortisol balance, blood sugar balance, physical activity, all of those things. Right. What role does melatonin? Because one thing that I've noticed, and again, I always talk about, I'm an N of one. One thing that I've noticed is prior to being in perimenopause, when I would take melatonin, I was like, it didn't work for me. Like I was like, yeah, doesn't do it for me. But now that I'm in in menopause, can I tell you, it is part of my nighttime routine. Like I literally Mm -hmm. find taking melatonin makes a big difference. Now I do know that my cortisol rises, you know, between that three to 5 AM at sometimes. And I do what I can to keep it, you know, um, because I, because I'm always testing and I've done the dust test and I kind of, I just know now, right. Of all the research of the last four and a half, five years, understanding it better. So what, what, a hack B, if you're saying that kind of the passing of that baton, of that baton would a hack be for women in perimenopause and menopause to supplement with melatonin? So I think melatonin supplementation is totally fine. I know that there are some people that say you shouldn't supplement with melatonin, but we have found that melatonin, at least my understanding is that melatonin supplementation is not suppressive. And so if you are struggling with sleep, you can certainly try melatonin. I do have some patients that depending on how their body does with melatonin, it can make them feel super groggy or some people can have nightmares with it. If that is the case, melatonin precursors like 5-HTP or tryptophan might be a better option. So then your body can just make the melatonin from those building blocks instead. Um, But it can, like you said, be a, a game changer, right? Like when your body is going through these changes, the way that estrogen and serotonin communicate with each other can change. Your body needs estrogen to make serotonin. When you lose estrogen, you don't have as much serotonin to contribute to melatonin. So you see this, right? Like there's this like, oh, okay, well, that makes sense. And then that way you can also support that serotonin pathway for melatonin. That's great advice. So to do either the precursor or taking melatonin. And I do think the amount is important too, because I know, you know, for myself, three milligrams of melatonin works. If I take six, it's too much. I know someone else who takes nine and it works great. So we're all individual. And I think, you know, experimenting is really key in listening to our body. So absolutely. Yeah. Which is Mm -hmm. really important. So I want to go back to estrogen for a second. So Mm -hmm. I know that there are different types of estrogen in the body and you mentioned the most well-known, which is estradiol. So let's talk about the types of estrogen that we have. What happens when we're getting to perimenopause and menopause? So our estrogen starts to fall, our testosterone, like just, if you can talk about the progesterone starts to starts to fall. If you could talk a little bit about that hormone imbalance that starts to happen, I'd love to start there and then have some questions after that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of times what we see is that progesterone, because progesterone 
is really, we rely more on progesterone for only really the second part of our cycle. So it doesn't have the same kind of presence in our cycle as estrogen does, right? Like we get a big bump of estrogen the first part of our cycle, and then we get a little bump of estrogen the second part of our cycle. But progesterone ends up being you know, part of only the second part of the cycle. So a lot of times when we start to see those hormone shifts, it's because progesterone is starting to kind of weaken and the signaling for progesterone may not be as strong. And because it's only part, you know, that second part of the cycle, it ends up kind of dropping off sooner or quicker than estrogen does. So a lot of times when we're looking at that um, hormone change with perimenopause, it's a drop in progesterone. We rely on progesterone for ovulation. And so when we stop producing as much progesterone, we're no longer ovulating anymore. And you can have cycles that you aren't ovulating. Um, so even if you're bleeding, you may not be ovulating. It depends on how that progesterone signaling is going. Now, because of that, like once progesterone Progesterone starts to wane out. Progesterone is really important in helping to balance estrogen and the effect of estrogen. So once you start to lose that progesterone, estrogen can sometimes get a little more excited and you can sometimes get a little bit more bursts of estrogen that happen because it doesn't have the progesterone to like regulate it. And more estrogen or too much estrogen can start to lead to like those hot flashes, night sweats, sleep issues, more PMS type symptoms, more emotional, breast tenderness, even cramping. Um, and you can have more consistent estrogen than progesterone, um, which can also lead to more irregular cycles, whether it's longer cycles or even closer to like, then you were like, well, now I'm bleeding like every two weeks, or maybe I'm just spotting all the time, right? Because you don't have that progesterone to balance that estrogen. Um, testosterone has more of a instead of having a cyclical rise and fall, testosterone is a little bit more consistent. And depending on your adrenal presentation, that can really highly influence your testosterone. What happens as the ovaries decide, you know, take their retirement is that testosterone relies on your adrenal function to made, to be made. So you get testosterone from the adrenal glands and then testosterone we rely on testosterone to convert into estrogen postmenopausally. So if you have low levels of testosterone going into menopause or even perimenopause, your estrogen may be further lowered because you don't have the gas in the tank to offer to estrogen. So when we're looking at this kind of transition that happens, we want to make sure that we can support our DHEA and testosterone production because those are precursors to your estrogen as it starts to fall. So in that perimenopausal time frame, you might see these little bumps of progesterone, but eventually the progesterone kind of spaces out and then estrogen may get a little excited, may not. And then, so you'll see these little like peaks and valleys, peaks and valleys of estrogen. And then all of a sudden you'll start to see it kind of wane out as well. And so that's essentially what we see with estrogen and progesterone. And we have E1, E2, and E3 as our estrogen. So E2 is estradiol. That's the most potent form, especially in cycling females. Now E1 is what is directly converted from testosterone. 
E1 and E2, or E1 is also called estrone, can convert back and forth into each other. But we look a lot at the E1 or the estrone for peri and postmenopausal females to see what that looks like in that conversion to estrogen. Um, E3 is also part of that kind of what we call the primary estrogen. So you have E1, E2, and E3. E3 is also known as estriol. Now, estriol is a very weak estrogen, but it's also helpful for lubrication. So estriol is one of those things that we think of for like vaginal dryness. The, the vaginal cells love E3. They will just like drink it up to help with hydration. Um, so there is a lot of, I would say, supplementation of E3 vaginally, especially as we start to go into um, having some of the symptoms of vaginal dryness and maybe not feeling as comfortable vaginally. E3 is really great for that. And because it's a weak estrogen, it's considered a little bit more on the safe side, I will say. So Debbie, I had my genetics done, my genetics tested, and I know that, you know, I, I want to go a little bit more into, um, you know, you know, E2, you talked about the estradiol, the E4, the E16. So can you talk a little bit about the metabolites? We're going back to the metabolites yeah. now, and really understanding when our estrogen breaks down in our body, which again, the Dutch tests will help us figure out, genetic testing will help you figure that one as well, is understanding mm -hmm. what the, you know, what E2 is, what E2 you mentioned, but what's E4, what's E16, how does that all work? And why is it important at this stage of life? Yes, absolutely. So um, E1 and E2 will break down into these estrogen metabolites. There is a 16-OH, a 4-OH, and a 2-OH. So these guys, the 16, 4, and 2-OH are part of what we call your phase one metabolism. When we talk about phase one metabolism, this these phases are in the liver. So when your body makes these hormones, they have to go through the liver to be metabolized or detoxed so that your body can get rid of the bad things, keep you know processing the good things. The 16-OH, the 4-OH, and the 2-OH are necessary, right? They're pathways that have to be done through estrogen metabolism. But as with anything in our body, some things are good and some things are not so good. So when we look at the good part of estrogen metabolism, the 2-OH is the most preferred pathway for estrogen metabolism. And the reason for that is it, um, this all has to do with how your estrogen receptors bind and are released. So when your body binds to estrogen, it's doing that so that it can help with detoxification, but it has to let go of that estrogen. So then your body can continue to process it. If your body stays holding on to these estrogens, that's where it can become problematic. And when we look at the 2-OH, the 4-OH, and the 16-OH, this is really all about how well the body is able to hold on and then release these estrogens for clearance. The 2-OH is actually a really gentle bond with the estrogen receptors. And so once it's going through that liver, right, like it's going through its little bathing of phase one metabolism, um, once it's you know cleared, it can pop off of that estrogen receptor really easily to get cleared. The 4-OH is considered the most naughty of all of these because it has the strongest bond, which means when it grabs onto that estrogen receptor, it's going through its little, you know, car wash in the liver, it's really difficult to let go of. And so that's where if your body's not able to let go of it, it can start to be naughty, cause a little bit of damage to your other DNA cells for estrogen. 
The 16-OH is what we call like middle of the road. So it's not as dangerous as the 4-OH, but it's not as preferred as the 2-OH. And the bond for that one is middle. So it has to work a little bit harder to, you know, get off, but once it's off, it's fine. So it's really about binding capacity and how well the body is able to clear all of those things. The 2-OH easily cleared. The 4-OH takes a little bit more and then the 16-OH is kind of in between. What we want to have with that is a big chunk of all of those estrogen metabolites. We want a big chunk of that to go to the 2-OH. We want a little tiny bit of that to go to the 4-OH and then a little bit more of that to go to the 16-OH. So when we're looking at that and the Dutch test will show this, right? Like how much of those metabolites or those hormones are being split and is that split appropriately? How is your body metabolizing that? Do you need support in helping your body to metabolize that? So that's what we look at in the Dutch test. And that's what you want evaluated, right? Like, are you making the good kind or are you making naughty estrogens? And I think that's so important, especially if you're considering hormone therapy, whether that's Absolutely. conventional or whether that's BHRT, right? So, and, and I think that's one of the, like, to me, that's why the Dutch test is so critical because it's actually going to tell you how you're metabolizing your estrogens. And so, so the good news is though, and I, I want to hear this from you is that if you, let's say, for example, like I know someone like myself, I metabolize a very large amount into my four, my four OH, mm -hmm. and we need to do certain things to get it from the, so you can get your four OH to convert to that two, correct? What are yes. some things that we can do that can actually make it um, convert to that two, that, that healthier estrogen? Yeah. And I would say like lifestyle things in general, right? Like less inflammatory foods, cruciferous vegetables are going to be super helpful there. Um, the food family of the APACA family, that's going to be like carrots and parsnips. Those kinds of things are all going to be helpful. Um, fatty acids, omega-3s, all of those are going to help. Fiber is also going to help with kind of clearing some of those estrogens too. Um, things that can really optimize your phase one metabolism for estrogens. Um, sulforaphane actually going to be helpful for both phase one and phase two, um, which is methylation. That's another part of your estrogen metabolism. That's like the second dock um, in the liver. Um, rosemary is really great for that. Um, calcium deglucurate. DIM can be an option. The one thing that I like to warn about DIM is that DIM is part of the broccoli family. It's like concentrated broccoli. Um, can also lower estrogen. And I know that there are a lot of people that will say, oh, if there's anything going on with estrogen, just take DIM. You want to be careful about that because DIM, because DIM lowers estrogen. If you already have low estrogen, it can sometimes make your symptoms worse. Mm -hmm. So you want that's where you want to be able to evaluate what are your estrogen levels, especially relative to your progesterone, because it's not just about estrogen and estrogen metabolism. It's about the balance of your estrogen with your progesterone, testosterone, right? So it's looking at all of those things. Um, but rosemary, um, calcium deglucurate, sulforaphane, DIM, those are going to be the big ones. Milk thistle as a, just an overall general phase one uh, support and metabolizer can be helpful. Mm -hmm. So it's really crucial that we support our liver. In Absolutely. Right. Yes. You say that's really one of like probably the most critical place to start. Yeah. And our poor liver, I mean, you know, when we're young and, you know, indestructible, we can do anything. Our liver recovers. But as we start to get older, we have to remember that we also need to treat our liver nicely. It has treated us very nicely. Right. We, we want to give, we want to give back. 
You want to get back. And also it's the master detox in the body and it's going to detox these mm-hmm. estrogens like you're talking about. So keeping it absolutely properly is going to help with it. So there's two phases, like you mentioned, of the liver detoxification. So that's what's really key. Mm-hmm. In terms of, you know, everything we talked about, is there anything that we I, we didn't cover that you feel is super important about the Dutch test and making sure that you're understanding your sex hormones and your cortisol and your DHEA? Yeah, that's a great question. There is um, another part of the Dutch test. So there's a little kind of like bonus um, with the Dutch test that looks at some organic acids. So on the Dutch test, because we do focus a lot on detoxification, your body's ability to manage stress um, and even oxidative stress, we do also test those things with the Dutch test. It's part of the organic acid. So we look at B12, two markers for B6, glutathione. Glutathione is a very powerful antioxidant. Um, We do look at some neurotransmitter metabolites, which are part of that sleep and stress response. We look at melatonin levels. um, And we also look at what's called the 8-OH or 8-hydroxy marker. This measures oxidative stress. So this tells us how aged your cells are, right? Like how um, how stressed out your cells are. So that's also part of the test. We're looking at your body's ability to like your response to stress, your body's ability to deal with stress. Same thing with your estrogen, right? The estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone, how well is your body able to maneuver and process through those hormones for you? It's so excellent. Is there research behind the Dutch test? Because I've heard, you know, you know, rumblings that, you know, some people are like, oh, there's no research to support it. And it's not backed by science. Is it backed by science and what science, what is science telling us about the Dutch test? Yeah, we do have some great research, um, especially if you are research oriented. We have um, some white papers that talk through um, salivary cortisol testing versus dried urine cortisol testing, what that looks like as a lot of the research supports salivary testing for cortisol is the gold standard. Um, We have great comparative research and literature on the website. We also have great research about uh, Dutch testing for estrogen, progesterone, testosterone um, in our white papers on the Dutch test. So if you on dutchtest.com, if you go there and look under resources um, and data that's available there, all of our white papers are available to review to look at that research comparison um, and studies there. I love it. I'm so happy I got it done. Like it literally opened up my eyes to so many different things. It's a lot. And I will say this, like it is definitely a complex test. So when you look at it, don't freak out right? Like when you see your first report, you're like, oh my goodness. Um, it is a lot of information. And that's why we encourage people as much as we have um, clinical consultants at the lab we are not allowed to consult with patients, which is why we try to make sure that you are teamed up with a practitioner that can walk you through it because it's so much information, so much helpful information. You can get so much benefit from it. We want you to be well guided with it as well, because if you don't have, if you don't, if you have the tools, but you don't have, you know, the ability to utilize those tools, it's not as helpful. So we want to be able to offer that information for you as well. And for those of you who are interested in trying or getting a Dutch test, we offer it. I'm a practitioner, so you can get it. We're going to put the link below. You can order it, whether you're watching on YouTube or you're watching in our Morphous for Menopause podcast, you can access it through the link below and, uh, and order it. And I highly recommend it. I mean, I'm a, I love, you know, get it, you know, just test, don't guess. Like to me, it's such an important mantra because 
we are, uh, we're so unique and individual. So what works yes. for me may not work for you, vice versa. And people who follow me on TikTok know that that I say that it's like literally my mantra because we're yeah. individuals. So, you know, genetic makeup and, you know, living life and who we are and then test, oh like, gosh. it's just, you know, it's, yeah. So I love, I love the Dutch test because it tells us what's going on over that 24 hour period. And it's important to understand it. And then you can retest it. So you said, don't get scared. I love that because you could change it, right? So yes, once you know the information, then you can change it. You could take supplements, eat certain foods. Would you say that for those who are have who have, let's say, low estrogen, would eating phytoestrogenic foods or eating or taking lignans, would that be something that can help? For some them? people, yeah. I have some patients that respond really well to phytoestrogens and even dietary phytoestrogens. So soy is the big one. Just making sure that you're getting good, um, you know, sustainable, Fermented. healthy, yes, um, um, soy options. But yeah, absolutely. I have some people that just even through diet can make a big difference in their hormone presentation. And would that change the numbers on the Dutch test? So let's say, for example, they have low estrogen mm -hmm. or low testosterone and they want to start, you know, you know, taking maca, for example, like, are there things that can make it could. Dutch test? Yeah. Okay. It could. Yeah. It, it will likely not be as dramatic as like hormone supplementation, but you can certainly see things change with supplementation. Absolutely. Perfect. Interesting. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Debbie Rice. It's so, like, this has been fascinating. I love it. And I'm so happy that Dutch Chess is around. Thank you for doing what you do. And thank you for educating you. us. Of course. Thank you. I'm happy to help. And I'm so honored to be here. Thanks, Andrea. And where can people learn more about you? And um, if they want to find out any information about you or reach out to you on social media? Yeah. Um, you can always check into dutchtest.com. My information is on there, but I am also on Instagram as dr.ricedebbie. Perfect. It's because there are a lot of rices out there and a lot of Debbies. <laughs> Perfect. Well, we're going to put it, it's below your name anyway, so people can access that, access it there. And I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. What a fascinating interview with Dr. Debbie Rice. I absolutely agree with her mantra of test, don't guess. To me, understanding where we're at, understanding our sex hormones, understanding our cortisol, understanding those organic acids that she talked about is so critical to really living our best life as we enter into this next phase of our life. If you're interested in getting a Dutch test, just click on the link below and we'd be happy to order one for you and you will work with me to determine what those are, what those test results are. Thank you for listening, everybody. I really appreciate it. If you got value out of today's podcast, I highly, highly, highly recommend sharing it because the more you share shows you care. And please leave us a review because when you leave reviews, it allows other people to get notified about our incredible podcast. So because together, really together, we can make a difference and help other women in perimenopause and menopause. So thank you. As always, I am grateful. We'll see you next time.